Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where young and youngish lawyers discuss with our guests legal news, events, topics, stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft, Statinius, and Hollister, and co-hosting the pod with me today is our executive producer, Jen Byrne of the Chicago Bar Association. Hi, Jen. Hi, John. So, Jen, the interview with our guest today could not be more timely or relevant. We are joined by Mikolai Pietschek. Mikolai is a dean of the Warsaw Bar Association and a partner of the law firm of Pietschek, Sidor, and Partners. He's a graduate of the University of Warsaw and Cambridge. Between 2010 and 2016, Mikolai was the chairperson of the Human Rights Council of the Polish Bar Council. In 2016, he was appointed by the Secretary General of the United Nations as one of five members of the Board of Trustees of the UN Voluntary Fund for Victims of Torture. Mikolai's practice focuses in criminal law, constitutional law, and the protection of human rights. And I just learned that he often handles cases dealing with terrorism and espionage, which is super interesting. I hope we get to return to that. Uh, Miko, I thank you for joining us today. Welcome at the bar. Thank you. It's, it's a great honor to be here. So I want to dive right into it because I think this is going to be a really interesting and substantive conversation today. This summer, Poland's government engaged in a sweeping purge of the Polish Supreme Court, which has been widely viewed across um, the planet, really, as an open attack on the judiciary's independence. It sparked mass protests in the streets. It drew the attention, as I said, of much of the world. But before we get right into that, I think it would probably benefit our listeners if you could explain over the course of a minute or so the structure of the Polish judiciary, because I know it's different. <laughs> it's more complicated than what we have in the States, right? That's we have a, a unitary structure, trial courts, appellate courts, Supreme Court. It's not quite that easy in Poland. That's right? an ambitious task. It takes most uh, students of law in Poland about five years to understand that structure. <laughs> okay. uh, you gave me two minutes. It is a continental law system, so it's different than the one you'll have in the United States and in Commonwealth countries and common law states, but we have state-appointed judges who do not come from elections. They are appointed by the mm -hmm. president after uh, being selected by a collegial body of uh, consisting mainly of other judges. And there are three levels of courts. Uh, the state courts, you have the, I guess, the lowest level courts, uh, the uh, mid-level courts and the high-level appeal courts. Mm -hmm. And then you have a Supreme Court the Supreme Court does not have a constitutional review function like it does in the United States. Right. It's a cassatory court, so it reviews cases in terms of their compliance with the law, but it doesn't question the constitutionality of laws like the U.S. Supreme Court does. For that, we have our constitutional um, sets up a different kind of tribunal, which is the constitutional tribunal. And... That court is solely designed to review the constitutionality of laws, to see whether the laws are constitutional and also compliant with international treaties. Mm -hmm. And that's really where the crisis started when you look back over the last three years. Okay. And as perfect a transition as that is, I'm going to ignore it for just a moment. <laughs> um, because I think it would also uh, be beneficial to inform our discussion to talk about generally what's been happening with Polish politics over the last few years. Uh, you know, when I think of Poland, I think of it as an example, uh, really the example for countries seeking to escape from and emerge from the Soviet system and embrace uh, Western democracy. But now it seems to be more closely aligning itself with countries like Hungary and other countries that are experiencing far right movements like Austria and to a certain extent in France, Germany, and arguably the United States as well, becoming progressively more, or I should say, regressively more authoritarian, nationalistic, 
populist, um, anti-immigrant. Where did this all begin? Well, after the downfall of communism, uh, 1990 is probably the best point from which we can uh, to, to, to judge that. We had about 28, 27 years of what you can only call a success story. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, consistent development in civil awareness. The economy was on the rise even when you, around Europe you could see problems arising in Greece, in Italy. And uh, it was, in all respects, a democratic success story. Then in 2015, um, during the elections, a populist party came to power, labeling themselves as conservative, traditional. And this is the uh, law and justice yeah, party. Yeah, this is the law and justice party. Everyone knows them as the Kaczynski brothers party. Right. And that is perhaps not relevant whether they label themselves as conservative or traditional. The key thing to understand is that they were populist and they were very focused on uh, concentrating political power in the hands of the executive and the legislative mm-hmm. at the cost of all the safeguards and checks and balances that are meant to control the executive and legislative. So in that sense, they had a very non-democratic agenda. Right. And that's important to understand because, not because of our political preferences, but because it led them to undermine things that are very important from the perspective of lawyers. Uh, the rule of law, um, the tribunals, the courts, the independence of these uh, tribunals and courts, the system of protection of rights and freedoms, all because it was inconvenient for a central political authority to be checked by these mechanisms. So let's go there. The Law and Justice Party comes to power in 2015, Mm -hmm. as you said. Correct me if I'm wrong on my timeline for the events, but as I understand it, they immediately engaged in what we call court packing in the U.S., filling the court with their um, cronies, for lack of a better Uh, word. I think court packing is perhaps too soft a word because we see court packing in, in stable Western democracies. It happens. But the question is what happens with these mechanisms which are in place, the legal constitutional mechanisms which are in place in order to prevent that or hamper that kind of packing. They they will generally act as a filter to impede the process of packing a court. Okay. Whereas what we saw here is really an illegal takeover and paralysis of the constitutional tribunal. So and how did that happen? Well, the, uh, the party that had been in, in power for eight years uh, at a last-ditch attempt to also pack the court at the end of its term, appointed two judges which it should not have appointed. Mm-hmm. And that's that's it was an obvious mistake. And what happened when the Law and Par- Justice Party came into power? They uh, passed a law withdrawing those two judges and Sounds setting like Bar- up. Do you know the Barbary vs. Madison yeah, case here? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and setting up three other judges mm-hmm. in the place of judges who were already selected legally by the previous parliament. Now that's key to understand. So okay. they appointed three judges to sit in the place of three judges who were legally appointed by the last parliament by the in the previous term. And this case, of course, immediately went before the Constitutional Tribunal, who was the only body that could uh, review the constitutionality of those decisions of parliament. Sure. And Constitutional Court said, um, in express proceedings, they said that uh, 
all five of those appointments are unconstitutional by mm. the previous parliament and by the current parliament. Now, the difference being that the previous party, no longer in power, said, okay, we acknowledge that. It was our mistake. Mm -hmm. And that we acknowledge the decision of the constitutional tribunal. Now, that's what should happen in a democracy. Right. Democracies make mistakes, they violate human rights, but they respect judgments which are intended to vindicate those rights and bring back balance. So they respect this controlling function of the courts. I.e. the system of checks and balances? Yeah, that's uh, that's pretty much it. And, and that didn't happen in th with the Law and Justice Party. The Law and Justice Party said, well... We don't agree with that. These three judges, which we packed the court with, we insist they are judges. And that gave them political control over the court. These judges were introduced into the building. And since that time, have started uh, participating in the judicial process uh, mm -hmm. in, before the constitutional court. And the three constitutionally appointed judges appointed by the last parliament were never admitted into the building. So we now have a, a terrible mess in the constitutional court which has been delegitimized after mass protests, criticism by international bodies which monitor the uh, fair trial rights and the rule of law. And as a result, the constitutional court has no longer become an um, ineffective mechanism for constitutional review to the degree that when lawyers want to litigate before an international court, they have to exhaust domestic remedies. Right. They no longer they no longer apply to the constitutional court because, for example, the European Court of Human Rights, the ECJ in Luxembourg have pretty much accepted that the constitutional court is no longer an effective domestic remedy. So they just see that as a a feudal requirement. Yeah. We have that here as well. You can argue futility. Well, but it's just, what it means is we've permanently, or for, for at least a few years, we've permanently lost uh, this critical element of the system of checks and balances, which right. is the constitutional court. There is no body that has the right to check whether a law passed by parliament is constitutional or not. In theory, that's the constitutional court. But it no longer serves that purpose because it's been paralyzed and delegitimized and is politically controlled. And that opened the door as of 2016, effectively, for the parliament to pass an incredible number of laws which would never have otherwise been passed, much less accepted by the constitutional court, because there's nobody there to stop them. To stop them. So they're passing laws by the dozens these mm -hmm. days, which are unconstitutional, not only substantively, but also from the point of view of legislative process. These laws are, they, the bill shows up in the morning, it goes through two houses of parliament by the evening and is signed in the night by the president. So there's no public verification, yeah. scrutiny. And as a result, as you can imagine, the laws are often not only shifty, shady, unconstitutional, but they're just a mess because that kind of speed does not lend itself to proper legislation. And most of these laws have one thing, one goal in mind, which is to limit the independence of the judiciary, to increase political control over the judiciary, and limit the mechanisms which impede the executive and legislative in, its, in their influence over the rights and freedoms of individuals. So you see a lot of um, 
increased disciplinary powers of the ministry vis-a-vis the judges. Let's go there. Um, I was reading a little bit about that, and it it really caught my attention. So as I understand it, the government set up a new disciplinary body to, as they sell it, to check the power of corrupt communist judges. Well, Um, Well, let me stop you right there. There are no corrupt communist judges in the courts. Uh, All international reviews of the Polish system, of uh, the judicial system, they have never found over the past 20 years for Poland to be any more corrupt than, say, France, Germany, uh, Austria, the other Western democracies. So that's a pretty naked fiction. That is complete and rubbish and it's populist garbage. Okay. Um, but has that been what's that's been, been the narrative. pervasive narrative? I was going to say. That's been the narrative. Actually, the Polish government paid taxpayers' money into a private foundation established for this purpose, and that private foundation, for millions of taxpayers' dollars in translation, um, set up a billboard campaign uh, two years ago, and that billboard campaign was aimed to uh, convince the Poles that their judges are corrupt. Mm. So we would drive down the street, the highways in Poland, and we would see billboards for our money saying, it's time to change these shifty judges. Uh, just unheard of a few years ago, this kind of very open war with the uh, judiciary. Yeah, unfortunately, we've been seeing similar attacks um, over here as well, not Quite as bad as that. Not quite as blatant, perhaps. Can I take this back by asking a question sort of about what conditions created these sentiments? Um, and how I mean, how are the people, how are the it's, Poles reacting it, to this? That's an that's a excellent question. I don't think it's a question that pertains only to Poles. I think it's a question of the level of civic awareness, the great influence that public and social media have on public opinion. Um, the fact um, that these new media have made populists very strong in their access to uh, people and their ideas, their opinions. And it's always, you know, judicial independence is a very hard sell. Uh, When two people go before a judge, one of them will leave the courtroom unhappy. And it takes a very mature democracy, mature democratic society, a lot of civic awareness for people to understand that even if they're not happy with the decision that a judge made, they should defend the system and the independence of the judiciary because it's ultimately the safest for the society and the individuals. It's difficult and, to sell abstract so, concepts. So, so, yeah, it is, especially yeah. Uh, especially for non-lawyers. And so um, that made makes judges an excellent target. And at the same time, if you put to that together with the fact that the judges are seen as the main mechanism which impairs the executive and the legislative from furthering their power, from, for example, introducing gerrymandering laws to prolong their their stay in power. Well, it's easy for the executive in a not entirely mature democracy um, to generate hatred against, uh, against the judges. Uh, Keep in mind also that in many continental systems, like ours, judges are not appointed as a result of elections. So there's very often a sense of lack of legitimacy. Where do these judges come from? I didn't vote for him. Why does he get to make decisions in our cases? Mm. And while 
elections may of judges may generate questions which come up in the United States. Uh, for example, do we want to have judges uh, under such pressure that they feel the need to issue judgments perhaps in line with public opinion because they want to be reelected? That's one right. problem. But on the other hand, you have a problem like we do, the lack of a or a disconnection between the judges and society that made it easy to target the judges in Poland in Hungary it's certainly in Turkey in in Italy so it's not just a Polish problem it's a problem everywhere where you have a strong populist government and so what was going on in the country what were the pervasive sentiments in 2015 when this far right leaning party came into power. I, I, I mean, that, you know, we don't have to delve I, I don't too think deeply there were, into there that, were, but there, was, there, there was a sense of a frustration with a large part of rural Poland, perhaps the underprivileged, economically underprivileged. They felt that, you know, we've been in the European Union, we're selling the success story, but I'm still poor. And I feel disenfranchised. I don't feel represented. The same party has been in power for eight years and they got comfortable. Um, and uh, there wasn't uh, much of a strong, for example, social democratic alternative. Mm. So the only real alternative was this party who presented themselves as being very conservative and played on that conservative traditionalist model uh, that gave them the support of the church, which is very influential in Poland outside of the bigger cities. And uh, that led them to power. But you can see throughout Europe these populist movements gaining strong support. In Poland, they happen to get enough support to get into power single-handedly. But you see the strength of Le Pen in France. Mm -hmm. Orban gained power. Austria got a far-right populist mm -hmm. as a president. It's happening throughout Europe uh, and I think not only in Europe, I mean, look, America is uh, cited always as a very good example. I think the difference between the European situations and uh, the United States is that in the United States, you have attempts by the Trump administration to impose upon the judiciary, to criticize publicly the judiciary, uh, and to influence judicial process. But uh, the judiciary is so strongly enshrined in the in the political and civil culture of the, of the United States that there's a lot of pushback you see journalists are very involved in scrutiny of candidates for the Supreme Court you see non-governmental organizations very active litigating against for example the uh, Muslim immigration ban so there's a lot of pushback that you didn't see in Eastern Europe until it was a little too late why do you think that is? Is it because, um, you know, it's a relatively... I, th I think there's democratic... It's an issue of democratic upbringing. Uh, I always say this to, to students in Poland and in Eastern Europe. An American student will leave high school. Perhaps he or she will have never read the Constitution or constitutional amendments, but they'll have heard enough about their rights about their civil liberties, to have an intuitive understanding of things like freedom of speech, mm -hmm. the right to a lawyer, personal freedom, uh, the right to go where I choose, when I choose. Uh, these are concepts which American citizens understand, whereas they might not know the exact wording of the Constitution and, and its amendments. In Poland, when a uh, and in the Eastern European countries, and I think also Western European democracies as well, I think there's um, not enough 
focus in the schooling system on uh, young people developing an awareness of their rights, their freedoms, the meaning of their constitution, what certain fundamental principles mean to them and their safety vis-à-vis the state. Judges and lawyers now in Eastern Europe have uh, started focusing heavily on civic education. But before 2015, I think we weren't aware of our failure to have participated in the civic education and we're uh, we're seeing the fruits of that failure right now. And with that Tocquevelian note, I think it's a good time to take a break. This episode of At the Bar brought to you by One Legal, America's top-rated court filing solution. One Legal's simple workflows and local support make it easy to file in large and complex courts like Cook, Marion, and LA counties. Chicago bar members get up to 15% off. Learn more at onelegal.com backslash CBA. And we're back. So, uh, Mikawa, you blew off my last question completely. <laughs> I'm really curious about this disciplinary committee that's been set up. And would it be unfair to say that it's meant to intimidate and chill uh, the judiciary into compliance with the government to toe the party line. It's one of several steps taken via unconstitutional legislation intended to bring about a chilling effect amongst judges. The signal that's being sent is don't say anything critical about these laws, don't say anything critical about the government, and most importantly, when you make judgments, start thinking about uh, whether or not you can be held accountable in disciplinary proceedings. Make sure those judgments are favorable for the state and, more importantly, for this political party. That is the signal that's being sent. They essentially set up a new chamber of the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And they took away disciplinary competency from the, uh, from the existing Supreme Court structure, and they set up a whole new chamber solely for this purpose. And that gave them the opportunity to stack this chamber with all new judges. Inquisitors. Now, inquisitors, uh, political officers, call them what you will. There's not a lot of respect in the legal community for the people who decided to participate. They're having trouble filling the seats. They're having extreme trouble, and there's no, there's, you know, the the reason is obvious. Um, Nobody who's a decent lawyer, a decent judge, attaches any value to their reputation will Mm -hmm. participate in this process. They don't want to be identified. So, as a result, you've got, this is generalization, of course, but you've got people who are marginalized within the legal community, people who haven't made a career, people who aren't of the best esteem, people who themselves have been subject to disciplinary proceedings. These are the people that are being elevated to Supreme Court justices in the new disciplinary chamber. And now it's important to understand that they are being picked by the president. So the executive is the only body that is uh, signing the decision on these new disciplinary judges. And the disciplinary prosecuting judges have also been handpicked by the Minister of Justice and appointed without any process of verification by, for example, the National Judicial Council, which should give opinions, at least, as to whether somebody should or should not become a judge. So not, that, bo- that body's also been unconstitutionally stacked, by so, the way. Well, it seems like there's quite a few of them yeah. <laughs> that I'm yeah. learning. So 
not the best and the brightest, to say the least, political yeah. cronies. Uh, what are their powers? What's the what's the consequence for judges who are not towing the party line? Well, just last week, we saw four judges who are very vocal, very outspoken in their criticism, not of the government, but of unconstitutional reforms of the judicial system. They became famous. They've become symbols of the protest against these unconstitutional reforms. These four judges were suddenly all summoned to appear before the central disciplinary prosecuting judge in Warsaw, one of the two disciplining judges who was handpicked and selected by the Minister of Justice. And they were, all th four of them, interviewed with regard to public statements that they made criticizing the laws uh, regarding the reform of the judiciary. And you and represent they, one of these judges? Well, correct? I'm, yeah, that's a caveat. I am representing Kristian uh, Markevich, who is the a leader of the Justitia Society, which is a society of judges that's, once again, very critical, very uh, openly critical of the non-constitutional reforms. I bring that up because you're seeing it from the inside. It's uh, something I had never hoped to participate in. It's a very sad event, but these judges are extremely courageous. They know that any mistake they made will be blown out of proportion, used against them, not only to put them on, to sidetrack them, but to delegitimize the whole process of criticism, mm -hmm. delegitimize the society of judges, which comprises uh, almost 4,000 judges, and as a result, delegitimize the fair and valid criticism of non-constitutional reform of the judiciary. What are the, the potential consequences? Are we talking about removal from office? Are we talking about That's, imprisonment, fining? The, the new law allows these disciplinary bodies to remove the judges from office, to fine them, to suspend them. They have a wide array. And of course, it has to go through the disciplinary courts. But at the top of that ladder, you have this new Supreme Court chamber, which is stacked yeah. with politically appointed judges most of whom were marginalized or at the very least are not of high repute with their, within their own legal community. So it's a fait accompli. It, well, it's a fait accompli, but uh, we still have the European Court of Human Rights. And, you know, the Polish experience is that sometimes it's better to be dismissed, to be repressed, but hold your head up high and stand on your principles rather than remain uh, within the system and bend your will to the will of the executive. Uh, so I think there's a lot of fight left in the Polish judicial community. There's a lot of fight left among lawyers. Um, I think there's slowly increasing civic awareness as to uh, the importance of the judiciary. Um, there's an ongoing effort by judges, lawyers, NGOs, I think a lot of journalists to educate society why we need an independent judiciary mm. and what that independence should entail and how these things we're seeing conflict with that independence. So you mentioned the European Court of Human Rights yeah. um, as an appeal option. What can that court do? Well, that court can uh, issue a judgment, which is, of course, binding under international law and with respect to an individual. It's a, it's a very important mechanism. Of course, the Polish state can choose to become like Russia, which um, pays lip service to the uh, judgments of the European Court of Human Rights. It says, yes, of course, we've effectively performed 
the judgment, or in the case of hundreds of judgments, it says, well, we're not going to perform these. But then you become marginalized politically. Right. Uh, so for Council of Europe states to disrespect judgments of the European Court of Human Rights, that has tremendous impact diplomatically, politically, on the standing of a state. And ultimately, that would weaken the uh, the Polish government and unfortunately the Polish state. Um, I think it's important to stress that all these actions are intended to support the Polish people and their rights and freedoms, even when we criticize the state as such or the government. And I think that's a line that needs to be... Um, that's a, we need to discern that because very often we will hear the public narrative that Poland is doing this and that. Poland is violating uh, the principles of separation of power, of rule of law. Well, it's the Polish government. It's the Polish legislative. It is not Poles. Poles are a very freedom-loving society. And I think it needs to be stressed that this criticism is not addressed to Poles it's addressed against very specific laws that are being passed by the government and perhaps against very specific actions by members of the Polish government. For example, press conferences during which a minister of justice publicly criticizes specific judges for specific judgments. I mean, uh, can't imagine that, what that's like. That might, that might be familiar to you and your audience. So the European Court of Human Rights has no immediate enforcement mechanism. The... Polish Supreme Court is now packed and doing what it's told for the most part. Well, not in its entirety, but there are new uh, new justices being appointed um, and they're slowly gaining a majority. That process is happening. Mm -hmm. uh, the president claims that Małgorzata Gerzdorf is not the... Uh, that's the uh, chief justice. That's, is not the chief justice. Yeah. Uh, all the current justices and Małgorzata Gerzdorf have made it clear that she is because she's subject not to the president's whim, she, but to the constitution. So there was a very dramatic moment this yeah. summer uh, that I'd like to talk about briefly where uh, the Polish government, as I understand it, passed a law, uh, a mandatory retirement law. Um, all justices, judges, including Supreme Court justices, have to retire at 65. Yeah. It just so happened that a lot of their perceived opponents within the Supreme Court were yeah. over the age of 65, including the chief justice. Then Chief Justice said, this law is unconstitutional. She showed up for work the next day. Yeah. Was she, she was, admitted? She, she was escorted into the building by a crowd of supporters. I had the honor of being there. Uh, it, was, it, was quite a, uh, it was quite an inspiring moment. Um, nobody blocked her from entering. And she still goes to the court every day. It's just the president says, well, she's a very good law professor. And she was the chief justice, but from my point of view, she no longer is the chief justice. So it's a question of delegitimizing the jurisprudence of the Supreme Court by the president of the state. Mm. As you can imagine, this is going to cause chaos. People want to know whether judgments in their cases are valid judgments and binding or not. And this is creating a massive sense of uncertainty just in the legal community and also among Polish society and you know we're in the European Union so this has impact on uh, companies that are from other EU states that are doing business in Poland this has impact on American investors when they go before a court they're going to want to know that their rights uh, economic rights their commercial freedom that that is protected on par with 
the rights and freedoms of Poles, and they can no longer have that certainty. So this is certainly going to impact the security of foreign investment in Poland as well. So what I'm hearing from you is that with the Supreme Court at least progressively becoming more compliant, the ultimate solution to this is probably going to have to be, no pun intended, at the polls, right, during an election. Um, sorry, I couldn't help myself. Yeah, it took I couldn't me help myself. <laughs> uh, when's the next presidential election? It's not a question just of the presidential election. It's the parliamentary elections. I think it's 2020, 2021. Okay. So the elections, the state elections, the parliamentary elections and the um, presidential elections coming up in a year or two, they're certainly going to be attended by, I hope, by a great number of polls. So you're hopeful. I'm very hopeful that we'll get many people coming out for the elections. I think that's uh, that's the key to democratic success. What I am worried about is um, the Supreme Court. We talked about this disciplinary chamber that's being set up and packed in entirety by the president. Well, they set up another uh, chamber in the Supreme Court, and that's a special chamber uh, for public affairs. One of the key tasks of this new chamber, which will be also you know, packed entirely by the president without any previous judges, uh, will be to judge the validity of elections. There's a saying in Polish that it doesn't matter who casts the ballots, it matters who counts them. <laughs> and you've got a delegitimized new chamber of the Supreme Court, which will be solely responsible for saying which, uh, which circuits the election was valid in and where it was not valid. So we're very concerned that that might influence the, uh, the elections. And, you know, for the reasons that we talked about at the beginning, there's no constitutional review mechanism. So we're expecting a new law to be passed, which will allow for gerrymandering, for other manipulations of the election process. And we're worried that that will not be hampered by any constitutional court. So just to wrap things up a little bit, hopefully on a high note, I saw a quote from uh, Leitch uh, Walesa. Is that how you pronounce it? Walesa. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, former president, Nobel laureate. Yeah. And he said that he feared that this was backsliding into a possible civil war situation, that Poland could be in another Ukraine. Do you see that as a possibility? Well, uh, I don't think that armed conflict is what we'll be seeing. I do think that we're seeing an atomization of Polish society, a destruction of solidarity and ties within society. I do see that there's a radicalization of views and families are being ripped apart. Mm. Uh, those who support the law and justice government and those who are against it. I don't think civil war is what we're looking at. I think we're looking more at a destruction of um, all the things that hold a society together, uh, common beliefs, common principles, and mutual respect, even when we disagree on specific political issues. Uh, that's what we're seeing fall apart. Um, if you're on one side, you're not on the other. And I think that is ultimately the most destructive effect of these last three years. We're seeing that same kind of tribalism here. Jen? Well, I was going to ask, I think this is sort of an overarching question that could apply in other societies, ours included. What 
is sort of one moment or one thing, or maybe it's a series of things, but what can you point to as um, time or a decision in this process that if done differently could have changed the course of things? What could members of Polish society have done? What could members of the bar uh, of the judiciary done to have changed the course of events to prevent this from happening, there, there's if anything? No, there, there's no easy answer to that, as you can imagine. But I think um, once the crisis did start taking place, I think the attempt to seize control or delegitimize, paralyze the constitutional court back in 2015-2016, that was key. If the constitutional court had been effectively protected against this delegitimization, against this political control, none of the further reforms, if you will, although that's a euphemism, would have been possible because there would have been a body a constitutional body which could have effectively stopped these reforms. So the fact that the government, the legislative, was able to create, at the very least, confusion as to who is and who is not a constitutional court justice, that was a pivotal moment. Uh, 250,000 people came out at one point on the streets. That was that was incredibly inspiring to protest in support of the Constitutional Court, in support of its independence. And yet that wasn't enough. When I look back, I think, could we have done more? Could we have made a difference? I think there were little steps that perhaps the bars could have done, political opposition could have done. Would they have hampered uh, this process? I don't think so. I think when I look back, uh, the thing we failed to do was educate our society over the past 30 years, sufficiently educate them as to the meaning of the Constitution, its importance, the importance of the principles. Once again, citizens don't have to know the words of the Constitution. They have to understand the concepts and understand why they're important for society, for individuals, for a healthy democratic state. And I think we as lawyers failed to do that over 30 years. And perhaps if we had been persistent, society would have chosen differently. Society would not have accepted to the extent that it did these populist arguments. And um, it would have been impossible for a populist government to seize control over the constitutional court. And with that moment of reflection and wisdom, we'll have to take a very ill-timed break. This episode of At the Bar brought to you by One Legal, America's top-rated court filing solution. One Legal's simple workflows and local support make it easy to file in large and complex courts like Cook, Marion, and LA counties. Chicago bar members get up to 15% off. Learn more at onelegal.com/cba. So before we wrap up today, uh, we want to play a quick game with you that we call Stranger Than Legal Fiction. Rules are pretty simple. Uh, Jed and I have both done some research. We found a real but strange law that still exists. It's still on the books, as we say. And then we've made another one up completely. And we're going to pull each other and uh, you to see if we can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Are you ready to play? Yeah, the last two years have made it very difficult yeah, for me to distinguish between fact and fiction legally in Poland. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the world has become a hall of mirrors. And with that, Jen, why don't you lead us off? 
Well, I'll begin with the American law, which I recognize you're probably not as familiar with, but I feel that um, we've got to take aim at both, and I'm going to represent America with this one. So the first law is a California – well, they're actually both California laws that I'm referencing, one being the fake, one being the real, your guess. So first one, in California, it is illegal to eat a frog that has died during a frog jumping contest – that's proposed law number one. Have we done that one? I don't think well, so. Well, I certainly haven't. I would like remember that, that. Listeners write in. Okay, keep going. The second is, it is illegal to eat a frog that appears on the California Department of Fish and Wildlife's list of threatened or endangered amphibians. Which is real, which is fake. And I don't know why I picked eating frogs, because this isn't a French episode. Well, didn't you just tell us that that one's fake? But they're both related to eating you said frogs. You... Okay. All right, yeah. Under right. which circumstance, basically, is it illegal to eat a frog? There's, okay. I'm not sure if this... There, there's the principle of the rational legislator. That's one of the underlying principles of, is, of law in Europe. A rational actor in economics. Uh, well, but <laughs> it's an underlying principle of interpretation of law in Europe. I'm not sure how it is. We assume the laws are rational and we interpret them in accordance with that assumption. And <laughs> so I'm going to use that assumption. And that leads me to the conclusion that it's the second one that's real because there seems to be a rationale underlying protection of endangered species. If it's endangered, you don't want to eat it. Uh, whereas the frog jumping contest, that kind of regulation seems less than rational. Although, to be honest, these days I wouldn't be surprised. I'm going to go the opposite way. One, because I think conflict is more entertaining. But two, <laughs> because I'm a big believer in behavioral economics and behavioral explanations for political science. And I think the less rational, the more likely it is. And you would be right there you go. with that assumption <laughs> because the Californians think that um, it is appropriate to legislate that eating frogs that have died during a frog jumping contest is illegal. And there's there's an explanation that I found for it. Um, this health code likely made its way into the books to protect competitors at the Calaveras County Fair and Frog Jumping Jubilee, a decades-old tradition in the gold mining town of Angel's Camp. Tourists and jockeys compete to see how far their frogs can leap. And if they die, you cannot eat them afterwards. I'm not sure even even the European Union has re regulated French cuisine to that degree. <laughs> That's saying something. Okay. Round two. You ready? I'm not sure anymore. There you go. <laughs> In the Polish town of Tuszyn, the portrayal of beloved fictional character Winnie the Pooh was banned on all public playgrounds. Option number two. In the Polish city of Lublin, it is illegal to hang drying laundry on Sundays in any area visible to the public, even on private property or land. Um, well, do you want to take a stab at this? I'm going to take a stab and say that the Winnie the Pooh one is the real law. Why? A bit, you know, based on the fact that, I don't know, Winnie the Pooh's a boring story and oh, come on he's a beloved international cartoon i don't know i'm just guessing that because it sounds more outrageous hundreds so. of millions of children grew up with i'm Winnie gonna i'm gonna go with your same rationale it sounds more outrageous okay. and therefore it's probably All real right, then, well i can argue with that 
I'm uh, I'm going to go with the Lublin one as uh, as the the real law, just to spite my esteemed colleague Bartosz Przeciechowski <laughs> from Lublin, and uh, suggest the irrational nature of the local laws in Lublin. So, Mikhail, if today has taught you anything, it's that rationality does not prevail in the law. The Winnie the Pooh law is actually the <laughs> real one. Um, the town legislature outlawed Winnie the Pooh because of his quote-unquote dubious sexuality <laughs> and hermaphroditic <laughs> tendencies. What? With one town councilor explaining that Winnie the Pooh was totally inappropriate for children to watch because he walks around half naked all the time. <laughs> so, so does Donald Duck. Yeah, that's a good point. A lot yeah. of cartoons do, actually. Yeah, I don't know. What, are they just saving a, on that's ink? That's a subject or for a different podcast, that, I think. Okay, yeah. we'll probably leave it at that. And that will be our show for today. I want to thank our guest, Miko Y. Pichik, Dean of the Warsaw Bar Association, for this alarming but informative and important conversation. I also want to thank everyone here at the CBA who makes this machine run, including my co-hosts and our executive producer, Jen Byrne, and our sound crew, Ricardo E. Sloss and Steve Wyrick. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the Bar, all one word. Please also rate us and leave us your feedback on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you download your podcasts. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us. We'll see you soon at the Bar. <laughs>